Welcome to our next installment of the Rebels of the Heart virtual conference series, which has been an ongoing segment where we featured great leaders across all different areas of business, different companies, really showing the next generation of leadership and what leadership with a heart looks like in terms of rebels breaking the rules, creating new rules, and, and establishing what a healthy business and personal relationship can look like. I'm Derek Bunston, CEO of Life Guides, uh, and we're building a platform in which caring people to do extraordinary good by using technology to match people who have been through a life challenge of some sort, with those who are going through the same or a very similar experience now provide peer-to-peer mentorship support and guidance to help people be happier, healthier, and more productive in both their work life and home life and where those come together. Welcome to Rebels of the Heart, Andrew Sykes. It's a pleasure to have you on here with us today. It's fantastic being here. Thank you. I'm a fan of your t-shirt and your show, so I'm doubly thrilled to be here. Thank you. We'll have to make sure that you get some some swag to uh, represent the brand and we'll go from there. So... Um, but yeah, so first off, I'll start with an easy question. Um, tell us a bit about, about your life's journey. It's been a fascinating one. I mean, your accent alone tells us something and what I know of what you're doing in the world. I think just hearing your story as you articulate, not the way you see from the biography, but the actual story of your life, um, yeah. how that, how that pertains into being a rebel of the heart. I think it would be fascinating for the audience to hear. Thank you. Well, my story begins where I was born in South Africa, and I had the good fortune of being born white in apartheid South Africa, Mm. which I have to say was the very, very lucky side to be born on, considering the amazing difference between the childhood I had, which was very privileged. My family were of mediocre means. I'm the youngest of eight kids, but I had a great childhood. Yeah. And 20 miles away in Soweto and in other black townships, kids my age were going through hell Mm. and back. And so that was an interesting thing to grow up in that environment where we were isolated from the world. The press was closed down. And so I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. And I started to travel internationally at age 21 and, and saw like, this is the way the rest of the world works. And I've been living in this crazy system of apartheid. It was a real eye opener. And yeah. frankly, very confronting for me. Yeah. So that's informed a lot of how I think about diversity, equity, and inclusion as an adult, how I try to run my businesses. Uh, but it, it didn't have much to do, I'll have to say, with my professional career because I started my career as, a, as an actuary of all things because I have a love for mathematics and problem solving and it seemed like a good career. But I very quickly started my first business at age 21 and spent a decade in South Africa building a health and benefits consultancy. Mm-hmm. And then about a decade in, I had this really curious conversation with my board about the impact we were having. And we had been, you know, luckily, the right place at the right time had a wonderful impact, growing our business. But I didn't have any metrics that we were making a difference to people's actual health. You know, there's a difference between insuring someone's health and improving their health. Yes. I might say, and I'm in that camp, that sometimes insurance doesn't do us any favors because it gives us a safety net that maybe gives us a license to behave badly. Yeah. But that led me to the choice to come to America, which is at the time, naively thinking America is the place where I can learn how to build effective wellness programs. <laughs> the second layer of naivety was I said, where, where is the problem biggest? And I chose to go to the epicenter which at that time was Texas and in particular Dallas. Yeah. 
And it was a humbling experience to learn like it, you don't always go where the problem is biggest because sometimes your solution isn't most welcomed. But that was then and things have changed significantly in America. And I spent about a decade in the US and globally building health and wellness programs and really getting clear about the problem with the way that work is designed in the first place. Mm. I sort of wrapped up that part of my career coming to the conclusion that if you need a wellness program, it may be the it may be symptomatic of the fact that you, the way you've designed work in the first place is broken, and maybe that's where we should focus. So I eventually wrote a book on that called The 11th Habit for CEOs inspired to build a company where health, happiness, and financial security are the core principles behind employee engagement. And then about five or six years ago, redirected the the company that I lead changed the name from Health at Work to Habits at Work, partly because a decade ago, we set up a behavioral research lab. And that was a response to realizing that most of the things that have been tried in wellness weren't actually working. And so we really wanted to understand, like, what does the research say about how people think, feel, and act? How do people actually create habits? What are the myths and what are the truths? And in the end, which habits make the biggest difference to performance in life and at work? Yeah. And it was all of that research that informed the new direction. Habits at Work now focuses on the habits of high performance for leaders and in particular for salespeople. And the last piece of my journey, I'll say, is I had the privilege of joining the Kellogg School of Management in Chicago five years ago. And I teach a range of subjects there. The, the key course is entrepreneurial selling, like my first love how to help an entrepreneur who's got no brand, no customers, no track record, no nothing, convince someone that they should take a leap of faith with them. Awesome. That's the, the medium length story, maybe the long story. No, that's a perfect length story. I appreciate you mapping it out that way. And there's so many different things we're going we're gonna to explore through this conversation today. Um, so I want to go back for a moment to something that you started in, which was this awareness that you were living in a space of privilege and that not too far away, there was an experience that was completely the opposite, where there was massive amounts of suffering. I'm curious, did you did you have any awareness of that as a kid that that was happening? Like as you talked about being kind of isolated in that environment, like did you have any knowledge that this was like, or was it literally that you were living in two different realities, even though you were so close in proximity? And there's a reason for me asking this question, but yeah. it's a it's a really good question, and I've reflected on it a lot because my remembered experience is that I was oblivious to it all. Yeah. And what I've had to look inside myself to to ask and answer is like, were you just ignoring it? Were you ignorant? Or were you just a product of this environment? Because it wasn't far away. And I'm sure there were, I know for a fact, there were many more people who were conscious of it, at work at it, sort of trying to improve themselves through it. I was just going through life as a happy-go-lucky kid who loved playing sport. Yeah. In my early 20s, I started to feel what I think can best be described as privileged guilt. Like yeah. I was on the right side of a racist, nasty regime. I did nothing about it, didn't think about it much. And so it led me to really question, you know, thinking about Stanley Milgram's experiments, which I'm sure you're familiar with, of how good people can end up doing bad things. I'm like, I was in the middle of that. Yeah. And so it's it's had me ask my myself this question as an adult yeah where am i not seeing what's going on yeah what can i do about it where i see injustice even and especially when i'm on the lucky side of that 
Yeah. So that's, thank you. That, I, that was the intuition I had. That was your experience. So what, when or what prompted you to quote unquote re- have this awakening moment of just seeing this and feeling as, and not, not just your awareness of it and all of a sudden saying there's a new way for me to, I mean, I know you mentioned global travel, but and maybe that was part of it, but where did it finally, especially since you now have some awareness or maybe had even an unconscious awareness of it, but then when did it become conscious and when did you, yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I wish I could say it was a moment where I suddenly realized and it all became clear, but yeah. I think the reality is it was a process. Yeah. And and I will say international travel was a big deal in that because I had not gotten on an airplane before I was age 21. Yeah. And when I did, I'm like, what? There's a whole world out there. This is amazing. And one of my earliest experiences was in London at Hyde Park. There's yeah. a part of Hyde Beautiful. Park, Beacon's Corner. Yeah. where anyone can literally get on a soapbox and yell about things. And I remember oh. watching this this really well-built like bodybuilder, but so articulate black man mm. talking about apartheid. And there were two young South Africans in the audience around him who were sort of arguing back. Oh. And it was the first time I saw this argument so articulately expressed on the other side, because I'd only ever heard the sort of government view on it, and I was really moved by that experience, and it left me, I have to say, shaken, realizing. What was it? What did you hear? What did, in that conversation? What was it that kind of? Because you, I, obviously I, can, I can see, I can actually visualize this experience yeah. for you. So, what was it that you felt in that moment that you heard? Yeah. For the first time, I felt complicit mm. rather than a bystander. And what I saw for the first time was like the the harm that apartheid had been doing and that it persisted because, as the famous quote said, good people were doing nothing. Mm. And so it left me kind of shaken that I had no idea what had gone on in my country. And probably you knew more about what was happening in South Africa, living in America, than I did living 20 miles away from... I often talk about Hector Peterson because he's very famous in South Africa. He was the first kid murdered in the 1976 Soweto riots. I was five at the time. I remember it poignantly because it was my favorite birthday. And so I always contrast, like I was having this idyllic birthday and he was out protesting the fact that he was being forced to learn in a language that he didn't grow up in. And as a result of that protest, got shot and killed that day. He became an icon on that and the sort of genesis of the Soweto riots. Yeah. Many people say that was the beginning of the end of apartheid, but let me be clear, that was 1976 and apartheid was finally dismantled in 1994. So it was a long, yeah. slow dismantling. And I had not heard his name, I don't think, before I was maybe 19 or 20 years old. Wow. Now, I don't know whether I could have or should have, yeah. but it certainly just didn't come to me in the milieu of media that that has you learn things by osmosis yeah well thank you thank you for sharing this experience so openly right just and and so really i can tell there's still emotion for you around this like i can actually feel that it's fascinating how did now that you had this awareness and you took you for like a term uh chose to have responsibility and shifting your interactions with the world and your experience with that and bringing on these causes that you that, that I know that you're doing we'll t- and we'll come back more to the present. How did that shift 
the way that you started interacting in the world and in your business? How did that inform kind of the next couple of decades? Because it was a process, as you described, going through and how you then moved through, you know, you're going back and starting a business and how that changed you being in that environment, building a company kind of in the post-apartheid time and having this acknowledgement of this awareness of two different realities. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the truth of it is that the first business I built, I was ruthlessly focused on building a business in the model that I was taught and didn't know any different from. Mm. You might describe it as like the traditional hierarchical, yeah. almost fear-based driven business. I was a tough boss focused on growth, not at all costs, but very much focused on that while all of this was happening in my personal life. So when I came to America, it all sort of come together and I realized there's A, a different way of running a business yeah. and a different way of being a human. And so I would describe my now nearly 20 years in the US as being a series of experiments in yeah. how one might run a business where humanity is at the core and profits are the result, not yeah. the other way around. Which, which you know is the entire basis of Rebels with the Heart, and that's the whole concept we're talking about. So we're going to come back to that in a moment, but I want to keep following this thread because I find it really fascinating, and you're, you're leaning into it, which I really appreciate, and being so open with the audience. You spoke about the 10 years. So you built a business. You were, quote-unquote, ruthless on focus on growth. You were a tough boss. You, you were focused on the result. You were focused on performance. Independently of that, some point through the decade of building that company, which was very successful, you talked about this awareness about impact. Why did all of a sudden, this, this was pre-human to America, pre-you seeing another version of, of how to approach business, why all of a sudden did you suddenly start caring about impact? Yeah. Also probably more of a process than a light bulb moment, because about three years before I left South Africa, I got really inspired by the work of Kaplan and Norton around balanced scorecards. Hmm. So I built for my business a very detailed balanced scorecard of what's driving value and employee staff or employee or staff turnover, customer turnover, net promoter score, profitability, all these things. Yeah. And it got me curious about what are the metrics for success <laughs> that drive value in a business. And that naturally led to the question of, well, of course, the impact you have on customers. But the, if there was a light bulb moment, it was the realization that my customer had always been employers and that all I really cared about on their behalf was, were their employees getting more cost-effective health insurance, not <clears throat> what the insurance actually making a difference yeah. or were they getting healthier or was anything else that they were doing making a difference to their health? And so I started to look at like, the, the science and literature on employee engagement and performance. And the more I looked at that, the more obvious it is that health insurance does not insure health yeah. almost to the country and something else is needed. Yeah. And that's what led me to the question of impact. And as I say, the DNA of my business wasn't built to care about that impact. So it would have been a big ship to turn or as I chose to do, I wanted to come to America to, in theory, learn how it's done. Yeah. So you sold that company in it prior to coming to the U.S.? Is that part of the journey? Yes, I, had, I had partners in that business that they continue to run it. Uh, it continues to be a successful growing business. I think they themselves have got much more interested in health That's and wellness. You may not know this, but South Africa is, is uh, one of the more innovative companies when it comes to insurance and wellness design. So I learned a lot there, as it turns out, that was yeah. useful for coming to the U.S., but I think all countries, because I've worked now in maybe 27 countries around the world, 
it's a universal struggle figuring yes. out how to design companies that fill people up rather than use them up. Yes. So coming back, you're going to keep following the thread. Yeah. Why, why Dallas? Why, did, you know, why was that the epicenter of where you came and started to try to crack this code, if you will? Okay. Because I struggled to get the actuarial DNA out of my way of thinking. So I can only describe it as an act of idiocy because I was sitting in Johannesburg and I said, America's a big place. Here are my criteria. Top 10 city where there are a lot of expensively insured unhealthy people who will be, you know, waiting for me with open arms. Yeah. So I narrowed it down to Texas. I originally chose Houston. Uh-huh. But having spent three days there, I didn't love it. And I had one good friend who had worked with me in South Africa in Dallas. And so we went there and started the business together in Dallas. And I loved my time there. But I also learned so much about how Americans think. Yeah. That was different for me. Mm. And confrontingly different because I grew up on American TV. So I came to America very cocky thinking, I know how this is done. Like, I, I know these people. They're my people. Yeah. As it turns out, for a South African, the American way of thinking is more foreign than you expect. Yeah. Because the language is so similar. We both speak a similar version of English that it was surprising to me. And I'm not sure I can articulate all those differences because now I consider myself American and I think like an American. Yeah. But I still notice some of them. Share share a few of them though. Just share like a couple, maybe the top three that were uh, kind of number one is the level of directness. You know, in South Africa, people are very direct in their language, their approach to business, what they'll say and what they won't say. There's much less veneer of politeness than I found in America, especially in the South, which is known yes. for being very polite. Um, I think the second thing is the approaches to business, you know, as Ruthless as I was in running my business in South Africa, I found that a lot of American businesses prioritize profits over almost everything else, mm -hmm. which is amazing to me, given how wonderfully rich and lucky we are in this country. Yes. And maybe the third is the way we go about thinking of productivity. Because it's no surprise that America is rated as the most productive country in the world, but we also seem to conflate productivity with hours spent on the job. And so I can, I think we may be both the most productive and the most burnt out nation on the planet. Yes. And I think that's a sad state of affairs because all these experiments in four-day work weeks and working smarter, not harder are very compelling. Yes. And I hope for America that we can figure out how to remain competitive without the costs. So thank you for, this is such a fun conversation because it's flowing so naturally. I mean, like you're just guiding it perfectly. So that goes to the next question, which is, okay, back to where you, the last thing is that you said at the, during your story, you know, is there a better way to work? What's the fundamental issue for how we work and, the, and how that intersects with health and well-being and wellness and this model of, of, you know, looking at a different way or looking at human first design for creating healthy businesses and flourishing how are you now? How how is that process of building a health, you know, a health at work into the conversion of habits at work into where you are now? How talked about how that's kind of all formed in your thinking and in your action with that with that fundamental question or challenge that we're all working on. Not all, but so many people in the rebels community are working on. Yeah. Right? I, I think it has been three roads that have come together. Yeah. One is some personal experiences. 
One is a bunch of research and the third is a set of experiments. So I'll start with the personal. You know, it goes back to 1995, which is an otherwise insignificant year, except for one key event, which is it was the first year that South Africa was allowed back into international rugby. Apartheid mm-hmm. had just been dismantled. Nelson Mandela was newly formed as the president. There was a lot of nervousness in that country about the risks of civil war. And I, for one, was not confident we'd get out of it without a civil war. Mm. And then I got invited to go to the final South Africa was playing New Zealand. And I happened to be seated next to someone who is one of my very best friends in Chicago today, but we were absolute enemies in business at the time. And so two things happened at that game. Number one, we became the best of mates, friends, as we say here, uh, mates in South Africa. And the second thing is like when we won, that whole 90,000 group of people was just like ecstatic. And it was the first time in my life I ever saw black men and white men, because it was mostly men at the game, not entirely, but black men and white men hugging. Mm. Like, what is this? I've never seen that before. And it was the first moment I felt like, A, South Africa had a chance of solving apartheid peacefully. Mm. And B, I realized, man, if you can find something that people can love and celebrate and support together, which I think was the extraordinary wisdom of Nelson Mandela. You can bring people who are otherwise enemies together in record time. Yeah. So that had me asking the question through my professional career, like how do you get people to come together around a cause? And so I've experimented with a lot of different models for running my business, how we might put employees first, and one of the things I do at Habits at Work for people who have been with us for a year is we, we invented something called the Uniquely You Clause, mm-hmm. which is a part of the contract that says, Derek, what is one thing that's really important to you in your life that no other employer can or is willing to do for you that we might be able to? It's not money. It's not benefits. Like Based on who I am and who our team is and who we know and what we can do, make the biggest ask that you can. Because I think if you can find a way to serve someone's life, yeah. you get back what you really want, which is the loyalty and commitment from their life. Yeah. So th- those are some of the micro experiments along the way. And in Brat Lab, we did a lot of research on these different models of running businesses. You know, some that are experimented with by companies like Zappos and others. You read, uh, I was just thinking about them as you yeah. said it too. Keep going. So like uh, holacracy was a system I toyed with for a while. I'm of the view that Daniel Pink's work on autonomy, mastery, and purpose is spot on, or rather his writing of the underlying research. So I would say more than anything else, there are two themes that top and tail my business approach. The first one is the answer to what I call the every person question. It's a question I've asked thousands of people. I say to them, if you think about your kids or your own life, what do you really want for yourself and for your life? Or what do you really want for your children's lives? And I get many, many different answers to them. But when you synthesize them all, they fall into just three buckets. People want to be healthy. They want to be happy. And they want to be financially and physically secure. So at the base of business, I think if an employer can attend to those three things, so that every day you leave a little healthier, a little happier, and a little more financially secure versus the opposite, which is the norm, 
you're streets ahead of everyone else. Yeah. So I'd say that's the foundation. And that was the focus of our book, The 11th Habit. And the top of it is this, I might say, extreme approach to autonomy. Because I think if you find good people and you're going to align them around a purpose, the best thing you can do is get out of their way and let them do their magic. Yeah. And maybe if there is a connection, I, I am one of those people who loves giving and receiving feedback. It's my drug. I think it is the genesis of genius. I believe that the willingness to give, receive, and integrate feedback yeah. is the difference between people who have years of experience but aren't that very good and people who are a couple of years in but are extraordinary. Mm. That's, a, that's a quote from the, from the social media feeds later. So we'll make sure we put that in there. So I, there's so many that are going to go down now at this part of the conversation. But before we do, I, I would love to hear a couple of examples of when that when you ask that question of your team and people that you work with about what could we what could we give you in your life that would create that sense of unity in their in your work together and your life purpose together? What are some of the answers you received to that question? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll give you just a couple of examples. Uh, one example is one of the team members said, "I really want to." travel and see the world. And so any opportunities that came up, and we're a live training and facilitation business, so there's a lot of them. Any opportunities for travel that came up, they were at the top of the list for them. Basically the dream, I want to see the world. Um, a second is we had someone on the team several years ago who was really passionate about a walk that he did every year in support of his military career and fallen comrades. And we were a sponsor of that event. Along the same lines, going back into happy, healthy, financially secure, right? We're going to come back to the to the last piece. How how are you equipping leaders and companies you're working with now to really prioritize that? As as going back with the ethos of being a rebel of the heart and action oriented, what are you doing to to move the culture, move the businesses, the organizations that you support, the organizations you lead into that direction? Is it true that employees in your company leave each day healthier, happier, and more secure? Or is it true that they're leaving some of that at the door as the price of being a part of your company? If you can figure out how the habits that drive those kind of things can be part of the culture, I think you're a long way towards having employees be happy in the corporate sense of the word. Lovely. Yeah, when it comes to financial security, that's one of, you know, being an actuary, a recovering one, that's one that's really close to my heart because I'm amazed that we live in America and still have like nine out of 10 people going to retire in a position that won't leave them able to continue in the same lifestyle. In fact, much worse. Yes. I had the privilege of working in Singapore for a couple of years and it's the polar opposite from that. Yeah. And many people say, well, it's a small country and you can do things there that you can't do here. But, you know, we could do in America things like having compulsory minimum retirement funding from employers and employees so that no one had to retire less than financially well. Yes. And we can offer people protection from life's risks as part of the bundle. Yeah. But I think we've become so obsessed with cash versus protection that sometimes we maximize people's short-term enjoyment and we leave it to the government or them to figure out yeah. what happens when they leave us. Well, so that's an interesting question, right? I mean, back to the concept of habits. How, that, that's a part of 
So there's systemic changes and things that we can do to your point, but it still comes back to individuals and how do we, how do we actually support individual people to develop the awareness, the skills, the access, the, the intention setting, if you will, that some of the things we're talking about to bring that into their own lives. And, and then how do employers like ourselves and others make that investment and support people to do that effectively? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing to say is all of our research showed that health, happiness, and financial security is largely a function of lifestyle choices and habits rather than genes, good luck, or income. Yeah. You know, wealth comes from good habits rather than from high income. Not, not to say that there aren't people who are living below the poverty line for whom wealth cannot be created even given the best habits in the world. But for most working Americans, it's true that they're earning enough to end up being wealthy if we could, for example, practice the habit of spending less than we make each month. Right. So the bigger question and the one that fascinates me, hence the name of our company, is why do people struggle so much to create good habits? And there's a few answers to that, one of which is my favorite way of saying this is humans don't have habits. Mm. Habits have human beings. By which I mean that actually the way we behave is mostly encoded in the world that surrounds us. Mm. So that is the relationship between how you design the world of work and how employees behave in that work. So for example, if I simply say the way that things work at Habits at Work is when you join, you are enrolled in a retirement fund and it has minimum funding from the employer and a default from you, you know, problem solved once and you don't have to think about it again. Right. But a more tangible example in the realm of health might be saying, you know, we don't expect you to be healthy after hours and he has a wellness program to support you. Health is something that we do on company time with company resources. I had an office prior to COVID, which closed it down because everyone became remote, but it was a space where we could work out, hang out, do our work, and practice the health habits that are otherwise being shifted to nights and weekends by most employers. And I think it's just easier for everyone if that happens while you're working. So what were you doing in that regard in terms of diet, in terms of exercise, in terms of mindfulness? Like what were you, what type of, how were you balancing those, prioritizing those experiences and doing the work? Yeah. So one thing is is encouraging people to work out together, even if it was you know every hour on the hour, standing up and doing two minutes of jumping jacks. It doesn't take a lot to improve health with very short bursts of high intensity exercise. Nothing that makes you sweat. Nothing that'll break high heels. Jumping jacks are maybe different from that, but they're things that you could do in work clothes and just get your body moving and your heart pumping. Uh, we also made a point of whenever we were offering food or ordering in that we would default to the healthy. Not trying to take the fun out of celebration, but what I learned in our research lab is humans eat what's close. Yes. Now we can all say we're foodies and we're very sophisticated in our palates and that may be true, but when you're hungry, you eat what's close. So we would only stock healthy foods in our company fridge and and, um, when we were providing those meals. And I think that's an easy thing for companies to do when you look at the alternative, which is the only food available on many company sites are the vending machines that are storing yeah. and stocking and supplying maybe the world's yeah. healthy foods. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's so true. And so now as we think about what we're doing in remote, how have you, how have you modified or how have you 
adapted that kind of mantra for like or philosophy for lack of a better term to you know apply yeah. now in this new design yeah it's much much harder because it's neither easy nor necessarily welcomed to reach into someone's home yeah but i think at least in our company we've got such a history and a culture of understanding the relationship between habits and outcomes that we can have the conversation easily and support people in designing their own little workspace at home that has what they need to feel healthy every day. Nice. I try not to schedule back-to-back meetings. Or if we do, one of the gifts I think you can offer everyone when you're running meetings is the choice to always finish five minutes early. Love that. Because there's, there's nothing that can't get done in, 50, in an hour that can't get done in 55 minutes. But just that little time to breathe, stand up, walk around a little bit versus sitting in front of a screen for five hours on end. I mean, it's no wonder people are going crazy working from home. Yeah. Well, I want to go into this. We're going to have to have a follow-up conversation to go into all the specific things that we, the strategies and what your research is showing, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of depth here to this. And I feel like we're just scratching the surface. And I think that giving a platform for you to share more of that uh, would be a very prudent idea. So um, for now, Andrew, how can how can our audience learn more about you? How can they get access to some of the resources and the research that you've developed? Um, how can they connect with you? We'd love to get that information. Thank you for asking. You know, uh, the topic very close to my heart for the last three years is trust and how to become trustworthy. And I'm of the view that as a CEO of a business, one of the most trustworthy things I can do is make myself available to customers and employees. So I'm happy to give out both my email and telephone number if that's interesting. But people can reach out to me in one of three ways. I'm on LinkedIn, Andrew Sykes under Habits at Work. I'm on email. My email is andrew at habitsatwork.com, all spelled out. And you'll find on our website and on my LinkedIn page, my telephone number, text me or call me. You know, I'm a big boy. I can choose to take calls or not. And I trust that people will call me with good intentions. So I don't feel like it's a too big a risk sharing all those details. Awesome. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your heart, sharing your purpose and your work with our audience. Uh, I really appreciate the way that you just leaned into those questions and um, just the authenticity with what you shared today. And I think that it's an honor to know you and know that you're doing this work. And I look forward to the possibilities and how we continue to collaborate where she much success. Now, back at you. I'm inspired by your podcast, by this mission of Rebels with a Heart. And thanks for letting me feel some of those things again today. What a daily experience that I get to go back and re-experience some of those moving moments in my life. I well, appreciate it. Happy to facilitate a welcome to the Rebels community. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Okay. See you soon. Bye-bye.